as you just highlighted, culturally, he, he sounds multi-talented, multi-faceted. Was yes. he was he well-read? Was he a thinker, political philosophy, leadership, um, all those things that go into you know being a intellectual uh, on some level? I wouldn't say he was an intellectual, but he loved intelligent people. Like Racine, among the brilliant writers in the history of France, would read to him at night if he was ill. He was well-read in history. And in my opinion, history is as good a guide to government as philosophy. And the court memoirs about motivation and what drives men, like Comines uh, from the 15th century, they're just as good guides as Machiavelli's philosophy, in my opinion. And so he did think about the art of governing, but really, to be frank, it's more about dealing with people and individuals and satisfying ambition and vanity and making your court a marvellous spectacle that all Europe wants to come and visit if they can. Um, it's more that than about the actually satisfying ordinary people or even making the step of having a representative institution to make your monarchy stronger. He didn't think on those lines. He was aware of the poverty of the French. Preachers were very brave. They said everything to his face in the 1660s, 1670s, Bossuet, Fenelon and other people, but he really did nothing about it. And he left uh, the French people probably almost as badly off as he found them. Now, in terms of um, religion, um, he is a Catholic, uh, devout Catholic. So how does he treat the Protestant minorities, the Huguenots? How does that play out in, in France? To begin with, in line with Henri IV and Louis XIII, his father, and the two Catholic cardinals, Richelieu and Mazarin, they'd been treated quite well, better than the Catholics were treated in England. They were allowed their own representative assembly and they had protectors and they could reach the top of the state like Marshal Turenne. But gradually he tightens the screws on this minority. He begins to remove the right to have religious services and finally, in 1685, he makes all religious services illegal and he arrests a lot of Protestants. He separates them from their families. And, and then later, unheard of persecutions, Protestants trying to leave France. They, people were encouraged to rob them and arrest them. Many were killed. Ships were searched, you know, like in the 20th century, people trying to leave Spain or Germany and the trains and etc were searched so ships were searched leaving France and I mean unbearable and people dying Protestants had the Catholic host pushed into their mouths so that they would in theory die Catholics um, but this was his decision I think he had a, a sort of well we can't interpret the politics of religion because if you're not yourself religious, I'm not religious, but he ha he thought he had a direct line to God and was doing God's work and was saving the souls of his Protestant subjects. That's what he thought. The, but but, the, but he, wasn't, he wasn't initially like that. There was a, a oh. change. And what, what caused that change? 
It was just nobody, really nobody able to do for certain. Either it's guilt at the excesses of his youth, or he's competing with the Pope for authority over the French Catholic Church. The French Catholic Church has its own assembly, which votes taxes to him. Maybe he's pleasing them. They didn't like, the bishops didn't like, but not all bishops. Most bishops didn't like a rather glamorous Protestant minority, which maybe was rather a better example of Christian faith than the Catholics. So they had begged him to abolish Protestants' right of worship. And perhaps the key thing is, I mean, he was fundamentally a European, always thinking of other monarchs, getting ahead of other monarchs. The Holy Roman Emperor, his rival, Leopold I of Austria, 1683, he's won a great victory. He's defeated the Turkish army in front of Vienna. He's reconquering Hungary for Christendom. Maybe he'll get to Constantinople. He's the most glorious monarch in, most glorious Catholic monarch in Europe. This is unbearable to Louis XIV. How can he be better than Leopold I? Well, Leopold I tolerates Protestants in Hungary. Therefore, Louis XIV will abolish toleration for Protestants in France and will say to the Pope, look at me, I'm better than the others. Though, in fact, the Pope hadn't really encouraged him to do it. It's a combination of these factors and possibly the influence of certain Catholics at court. And, and how does he treat the, the Jews in France? Similarly to the Protestants or was there was there a difference? I know um, you highlighted in the book um, his visit to the synagogue in Metz, which was sounded to be extremely unique, as well as his um, strong condemning condemning the the blood libel of Raphael yeah. Levy in 1670, which to me seemed to be extremely unique for a Catholic yeah. one. It shows what he could have been in other fields. In these early tolerant years of his reign, 1657, he goes to the synagogue at Metz. And it's not just a cursory visit. He's there during the celebration of Sukkoth. So it's during a festival with his court, i.e. he's saying, it's all right, it's okay, you're under my protection. And why Metz? Because Metz is the main the largest garrison in France, it's an army base, and the Jews of Metz help supply the army with various things it needs. And this this really goes on until the French Revolution, the protection for the Jews of Metz by the French crown. And they are rich enough to help the city of Metz in 1709 during a, a famine. But some other Jews in Bordeaux and Marseille, occasionally they suffered from rather theoretical decrees of expulsion for foreigners and Armenians also, but they were allowed back. So they, a few at any rate, flourished in Bordeaux and Marseille, the great merchant ports of France. So I think he didn't feel threatened by Jews. They were useful to his monarchy. Therefore, he could be quite tolerant. But this is 1657, when he's still a mild young man. Everybody says he's really gentle and kind. He changes, he hardens with time. And that is when he begins to persecute the Protestants. In a way, even the 17th century found horrific. And he loses... 
that 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 discrimination of the Protestants um, also found expression against the Jewish communities in in his territories, or not to the same extent. No, it it didn't. They not in Metz at any rate. Occasionally there were decrees in Marseille and Bordeaux, but I don't think they were applied, or it was maybe a way of raising more taxes. No, the Jews was was smaller and less prominent, therefore less threatening to the king. Um, when you look at, um, from the perspective of 2021, uh, and when you teach your students or you, you write, um, how, how do you, how do you, um, what is Louis's um, legacy? What, what do you feel is his legacy and what can be learned from, you know, this extremely long and, you know, it sounds like a complicated personality that wanted to do certain things, maybe wasn't that successful, you know, really very complicated personality. Well, I think there's two legacies, A, that, or two or three, that, you know, it's a case of, of imperial overreach, like every other great power there's ever been, practically. He just tried, he thought he was omnipotent in the 1680s. He tried to do too much, and he used horrific methods of bombardment. He bombarded Brussels, Heidelberg, Algiers, Genoa. Like other countries have used horrific war methods in the 20th and 21st century. Um, and it didn't work. It turned world opinion against him. And he overtaxed his own power base, France. So it's then that England uh, becomes richer and takes over as the leading world economic power and founds the Bank of England, partly with French Protestant refugees. I think the second thing is the importance of soft power. He really believed in the arts. France does become a centre of European culture and the arts. Everybody wants to come and visit Versailles and the Louvre. He's already making the Louvre consciously a palace of the arts with exhibitions. He makes Paris very welcoming to foreigners. What he, what France loses in wars, it recovers through the arts in his reign. And he understood the importance of leisure, as we know now in lockdown and so on. Leisure is very important. He always had dances, parties, plays, entertainments in the gardens of Versailles. And he's consciously encouraging people to spend on clothes because that'll be good for the French economy. All this is Louis XIV. And he's already global. He's in touch with the Emperor of China, the King of Siam, the Ottoman Sultan. He, he uh, Native Americans, a few are brought to visit him at Versailles. Some Africans are brought to Versailles. Could, could, could France have become... Um a dominant power in North America if things were done differently? Yes, that's one of the great ifs of history because his men seized the entire valley of the Mississippi from Montreal to New Orleans. New Orleans is named after his nephew, the Duc d'Orléans. And there's two things. He didn't allow heretics or Protestants to settle in French colonies, as England allowed uh, Puritans and nonconformists to settle in English colonies, he didn't in French colonies. And anyway, the French already were not very keen to go to North America, even if they had government help with the ship 
the shipping transport costs. And I'm not quite sure why, but mainly perhaps because the climate in Canada wasn't very attractive or in Mississippi with marshes and disease then wasn't very attractive. Or maybe it's this over too much state authority in the colonies. Interesting, because certainly in, in early American history, the, uh, uh, the Catholics faced tremendous discrimination. The Catholics, yes. had, had they populated parts of North America, it might have been a, a whole different, you know, a whole different yes, ball. It would have been completely different, yeah. But, but his, yes, his attention is on wars in Europe. Did, did, did he have, um, did he really think that he could fight the Ottoman Empire and, and change the Ottoman, conquer the Ottoman Empire and bring those territories under his rule? Normally, he's happy to be its ally. Uh, lots of French trade in the Ottoman Empire and lots of Ottoman attacks on Austria coordinated with Louis XIV. But there's a moment in 1685 to 6 to 7 when all Europe thinks that the Ottoman Empire might collapse after its defeat at Vienna. There's talk of the Sultan retreating to Asia from Istanbul. And then Louis has plans. Oh, maybe we'll take Egypt. Maybe we'll take Syria and Lebanon. And local Christians are in touch with the French ambassador and French consuls saying, oh, come and liberate us. Forget about the Rhine. Think of Syria and Jerusalem. And there's this amazing picture just discovered a few years ago in Paris behind a plaster wall of Louis XIV's ambassador in 1674 in full French court dress with his staff in front of Jerusalem. And it's probably the first accurate picture of the city of Jerusalem. He's going around the Ottoman Empire as a French ally, making sure provincial governors have the text of the latest agreement between Louis XIV about how French priests and merchants can travel freely in the empire. But it's quite a statement. France is already there in the Middle East. Like, to this day, half of Lebanon still speaks French. Absolutely. So, so, so as, you admit, you know, as you had written in the book, from the Mississippi to the Mekong, right? Yes. So, so was, was India ever a part of that? Did he ever set his eyes on India? Yes, indeed. He had a few settlements like Pondicherry and Surat, trading posts, and travelers told him about the great Mughal, the power and splendor of the Mughal's court. He's aware of it all. He's very interested in jewels. So the same people selling jewels to the Mughal were also selling jewels to Louis XIV. But he's not yet thinking of conquest because the Mughal Empire appears so strong. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. We can go on for a long time, but um, again, it's um, Louis XIV, the King of the World by Philip Mansell. Um, and thank you very, very much for, for your time today. Really appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you, Ari.